Hi everyone and welcome to a, another edition of the InTouch Growth Academy 7 Figure Club podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled um, within this uh, podcast to be introducing you to a guy who I was introduced to uh, around about 12 months ago with a couple of his books uh, and that's a guy called Mike Michalovich. Um, Mike has written a number of books um, which are helping small businesses uh, mainly in the US, but all across the world now as his um, profile grows, to basically talk about um, the journey that they go on and how they can make things a success. And uh, Mike's written uh, books, one of which is called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, uh, another called Profit First. But the book that I um, engaged with him on and listened to, and I was absolutely consumed by, I thought it was fantastic, was a book called The Pumpkin Plan. And The Pumpkin Plan is a fantastic book which talks about how you can basically take the learning earnings of American giant pumpkin owners and take them into your business and uh, get the results you want. So I was absolutely um, chuffed to bits when Mike agreed to do a podcast with us and um, Mike had bought and sold businesses and built up a business sorry and sold his business but is now full-time focused as an entrepreneur and um, has a really incredible mission for his business which you'll hear in the podcast. So um, I'm not going to say any more apart from um, saying this is really a you know, podcast that I, I strongly encourage everyone to just take notes on where you can replay, reuse. We've also got a video of this um, as I did this through a Skype, uh, sorry, Zoom call with Mike so I'm also going to publish the video so people can actually see my connection because he's great value. So here it is, the uh, next Seven Figure Club podcast with the uh, incredible author of The Pumpkin Plan, Mike Michalowicz. Okay, well, welcome to uh, the next edition of the Seven Figure Club. I'm really proud and been honoured actually to be here with uh, a guy that uh, a guy called Mike Michalowicz, who is uh, based in New York, I believe in the US. Um, and uh, right Mike, the window. yeah, ex- exactly. So M- Mike's a guy that I, uh, I I was recommended to actually by a, a friend of mine who basically said you need to listen and read the Pumpkin Plan, and I did, and I reached out to Mike, and Mike's really happy to share some of his thoughts. So welcome, Mike, to the Seven Figure Club podcast. James, thank you for having me. Well, it's great. So, so just tell you know, for, for the, those that are listening, tell us a little bit about you first. Obviously, I've listened to your story through the Pumpkin Plan and and, um, and listened to some of the voices. But tell me a bit about you and your you know how you sort of started as a business person, sort of when when you first had your IT business, and, and a bit more about sure. you personally. Sure, sure, sure. So today I'm a full time author, but when I started out right after college didn't have a job, couldn't get a job, in fact, and kind of fell into entrepreneurship. I, I had a menial, not a menial, but I had a basic job, but was inspired one day through drinking. Uh, you know, it's amazing when you have quite a few beers in you, how courage kicks in, you know, yeah. liquid courage. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll start my own business one day. I, I can make so much more money doing this on my own. So the guy I was drinking with said, well, start a business today. I said, I'll just do it. He said, we'll do it. I'm like, I'll do it. I, <laughs> I did it. Um, by the way, I do not recommend that as a strategy to growing a business. It was uh, scary. I, I had no idea I was going into. I also was married at the point uh, to my wife. So it was, uh, it was daunting. But what I found is that fear, James, is a great motivator, uh, at least for a period of time. It, it got me up at five in the morning and working till you know, five the next morning. I, I was relentless in working because I, I was desperate to make money anyhow, any way I could. Um, over time, I, I feel that that fear and stress is something that will kill us. So it's not something you want to stay in that state for a long time. But the early years, fear was a big advantage for me. And then over time, I started getting traction. I f- truly fell in love with the art 
of entrepreneurship and uh, was able to grow that company, uh, sold it to private equity, just, which means a small investment group. My, my second company uh, was in computer crime investigation. That yeah. first one was, was in IT. The, the second company, Right Place, Right Time, the infamous Enron trial hit. Uh, my company got a part of that case and it took us to a whole new level. We were doing stuff with celebrities, Christy Brinkley. Uh, Michael Jackson was, uh, was accused of, of molesting children um, and we were, at least we were inquired about managing that. And it was right around then when I sold the company um, to a Fortune 500. And uh, the great news there is, well, I shouldn't say the great news, but it became an awakening for me. I, I had more money in my life at age 35, I think it was, than I ever had before. But I also became a dick. Uh, I don't know if that translates across the pond yeah, as well. It does. But it, yeah. it does. Okay. I was a dick. I mean, a total dick because I just became arrogant and full of myself. Like I knew all the answers to entrepreneurship. I thought, I thought I had the Midas touch. And uh, what I did was blow the money on stupid cars. Cars, yeah, yeah. So Dodge Viper, LR3, Land Rover, uh, which I think is British, right? Yeah. Uh, the um, BMW 7 Series. I guess I was trying to get every nation represented. I was <laughs> off to you know a Lamborghini or something. I bought a big house, um, vacationed in Hawaii. We we got we went on a sabbatical out there. All these things, but the bigger part was I also became an angel investor. I said, I'm just going to start many businesses and now just build them and sell them. And the arrogance I had on these trophies and nonsense and the overconfidence and arrogance I had about my business prowess really became a collapse. It took me about two years. I blew everything, you know, blew everything, just like an idiot. And as I was going through this collapse, what kept on going on in my head was if if I could just buy my way out of this, if I can just have one success, it'll turn. And I, I believed it until literally there was nothing left. Uh, it was Valentine's Day, 2000, uh, 2008, I believe. So uh, nine years ago now, 2008, when, uh, when I hit rock bottom, meaning there was nothing left and had to restart. And that was the awakening. That was the thing that woke me up and said, oh my God, I really don't know what I'm doing. Um, I actually went through depression for a period of time. Really? Uh, yeah, two years of, de- well, a year and a half of depression. It's called functional depression. It's the highest level of depression. Yeah. It sucks. Uh, I bet you a lot of people, James, watching in right now, they've experienced that. And, and this is, to me, this is the real part of entrepreneurship. The stress and the depression is the stuff we don't hear about. We see the cover of Inc. Magazine or something like that, and it's, it's Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or, or uh, Richard. They're not everyday people, are they? That's the thing. No. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's the and that was a great thing, I think, from when I listened to The Pumpkin Plan. And I, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader of books and, and I listen to books and I love them. Yeah, and, and, and when I was looking at it, I was thinking, yeah, The Pumpkin, what does all this mean? But actually, when yeah. you go through the book, and I think that was your second book, wasn't it? Because The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur you was your first one. But, but actually, the concepts behind The Pumpkin Plan are just so... You look at it and go, yeah, it just makes sense. And I have to say, I love the accents in the book when you, um, when you, when you so when you were talking through the guy, in the, when you were talking through the guy, was it Joe who talked to you about having the one nut basically? So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and cause uh, talking about him, he was, seemed like a mentor to you initially. Is that, was he, he's someone that, you know, you obviously it's quite a big theme in the book that you sort of listened to his advice early and said, look, actually I don't want to be this hardworking entrepreneur that doesn't enjoy life. Was he quite an influence on you? Huge influence, huge influence. Um, so what he did for me, he was my business mentor and, um, <laughs> this is true. He sat me down one day 
and said, you know, what you're doing is not working out. It's not working right. He's like, you've got to envision where this path is going to take you. What he was explaining is that many entrepreneurs, almost all of us get stuck in patterns, a repeating pattern. Yeah. And we keep doing the same thing. We think we're changing. We're just not. We're just doing the same thing harder. Yeah. So he said, we're just going to play that pattern out to the end. And he, he looked at me and said, the end's scary for you. You're going to be sitting on a rusty lawn chair with your one nut hanging out. <laughs> nothing to show for it. And that's his exact words. I'm not doing it for dramatization. My jaw dropped. I'm like, uh, he's like, you got to see it. He's like, you've got to be disgusted by it. You got to say enough's enough. Until you feel that pain, you're not going to change. Yeah. And it scared me. And it stuck with me. I kept on hearing that future I was playing out. So it was clear I had to do something differently. I had to move into a zone that was uncomfortable for me to start growing. And, and, t- and talk to me because I've, I've listened to the book and I'm, you know, I'm going to use this as a shameless plug for the book because um, I, I, I find it it's a, and, and also some of the other stuff you've done. But you know, when I, when I, when I listened to a lot of the concepts in the book, they all made such a lot of sense in terms of actually, you know, being, um, being able to focus on a specific group of customers and actually the whole idea of the pumpkin. But tell me how you got into the idea of knowing how a pumpkin grows in because obviously when you think about it, it makes logical sense for them to cut off the weakest ones in the link and focus yes. on them. How did you get to that sort of book title and, and concept? So I'm a big believer in analogies, in something that we can visualize. So I strategically, as you can see, have my books positioned yeah, behind yeah, me. And the pumpkin plan, if my fingers are right spot, is right around there. The pumpkin plan, I wanted to associate a common visual or something that we can associate with and relate that to our business. And that's you know, the exploding massive yeah. pumpkin. We've all seen it. And um, so that was an important component. But I also studied these guys. I spent a year of my life okay. around 2000 studying pumpkin farming, visiting farms. Uh, believe it or not, there's, there's videos, uh, extensive document, documentaries about these guys and what they do. And there are certain steps that they take that are different than the ordinary growing process, but 95% of it is the same. It's a 5% difference. And that was kind of the aha. We don't need to change everything. Yeah. The fact is, the entrepreneurs listening in right now, you got 95% of it correctly. Correct. You're, you're attracting clients. You're selling your service to them or a product. You're delivering it. You're collecting money. You're doing a lot of things to be able to pull that off. But if you're not experiencing growth, it's probably this 5%. And what the pumpkin farmers are, they, they select a different seed. They, they pull, as you said, they pull the weak sprouts out. They focus on what's strong. They amplify it. Those things that the pumpkin farmer does, does translate into our business. We have to select the seed, meaning what resonates with us and the client base. We have to align with that. We have to pull out the weak things. Don't try to improve your weaknesses. Amplify your strengths. That's what you can move forward by a million miles. There's about five or six things that pumpkin farmers do that we need to do. It's amazing that yeah, and, and it's a, it's, a, it's fascinating you say that. And to hear you spent a year, you know, looking into yeah. it is quite mad, really. But I guess it's it's, it's it is a little bit mad. But it's great because it shows through in the book. But in terms of you know talking about business in general, obviously a lot of the people that we have on the podcast and on the videos are, are business owners. They want to grow. And you know, when yes. I listen to the um, what was interesting for me is when I listen to the to the book. You know, at the end of every chapter, you pumpkin plan every industry because overall, it says, "Yeah, Mike, it doesn't work for my industry." Right. But actually, you went through all these different elements, and you go, "Well, yeah, that makes sense." Actually, and one of the things that's really key for me was was around the idea of niche and, and being able to focus yes. on customer. Is that something that you think is? 
and we talk to a lot of businesses who maybe sometimes say, who do you, know, we talk to them, who do you target? Well, I target everyone. And it's a bit like, yes. well, is that one of the major problems you think a lot of business owners that are small business owners have, Mike? Oh my gosh. Niche specialization is everything. I've done it through my businesses. Everyone, when I sparked growth and I'm, I'm running my third successful business right now, the angel investing was my failures. Niche specialization, catastrophic not catastrophic, catastrophic, stratosphere, stratosphere, that's the word, yeah. not catastrophic. The other one was catastrophic, being an angel investor, but stratospheric growth, all about niche specialization. You know, when, when someone doesn't specialize in a niche, I ask them, you know, James, kind of like you alluded to, who do you serve? They say, anybody. I mean, do you want to go to a prospect and say, hey, you're an anybody, I'll do business with you? Of course not. Of course not. You, you're diluting the, the ability to serve them. You're generalizing all prospects to be the same. And if the prospect really understands that, you're just calling them just a, you're just an anybody to me. Mm. Instead, be a niche specialist. Say you just serve, my business says, just accountants um, who, who uh, have a, a, a $500,000 US to a million dollar uh, business that, and want to grow it by double within one year. So if I go to a prospect and say, hey, you're an accountant, you're doing half a million dollars in revenue and you want to double it within 12 months, you're exactly the person that I specialize in serving. Now they're like, oh my God, you, you get me, you understand who I am and you're speaking specifically to me. Yep. And when you say anybody, you're so diluted that you can never be a specialist for one person. You can never cater to their biggest need. You must specialize in a niche. And, it's, uh, it's a, and, and I think it's, it's a really... Great thing, and it's uh, being honest. As a business, it's an area we, you know, we make software. But ultimately, people have always said to us, sometimes, you know, in, in software, it's an area whereby we, you know, have specific areas of, of speciality. But to, to that point, have you ever found, you know, one of the challenges sometimes that business owners might say is, oh, it's all very well to do that, Mike. But if I specialize, what happens if I then lose yes. you know, these other customers? Or you know, what's your response to, to that? And, and and actually, how can you, you know, is there any advice you can give to people to actually make that jump? And I know you've got lots of resources online on the pumpkin plan to sort of do the customer sort of review, but is there anything you can do to, you know, to, to, to encourage business owners to go, actually, this is what I need to do in order to make yes. this? So there's two common forms of resistance I get. One is the first one you said is, uh, if I specialize in a niche, I have to fire clients that I currently have. I can do all these things. I, I don't know who said that, and I'm not even suggesting that. We're talking about niche specialization, not niche exclusivity. These are two different things. Specialization means where you develop a talent for a specific category and concentrate your effort on them. But if you have existing clients that are great clients, keep them. Mm -hmm. You don't fire them. Continue to serve them. There's a reason they're working with you. And as you specialize in a niche, if someone outside that category comes to you and it represents a good financial opportunity, it represents a good relationship, take the business. Mm -hmm. Niche specialization is where the majority, 50% or more yeah. of your client base are in that category. And you, this is kind of like a dial. First, you target the marketing for this niche specialty. Other business comes to you, you still take it. If you have a good reputation, that's naturally going to happen. It's called word of mouth. Once you're concentrating your marketing there, you start getting clients, you develop expertise, specialized offerings for them. You refine your software product to cater more and more to the industry. Over time, that will trigger momentum and you'll get more and more clients in that category. But you don't have to turn away other good business opportunities. The second resistance I hear, James, is people say, if I focus on a niche, what if that niche collapses? What if I pick a niche that goes away overnight? That will destroy my business. Well, here's the beautiful thing. Because I heard that resistance, I've studied over the last couple of years now about 100 niches to see how many collapsed overnight. 
I found not a single niche in the world has ever collapsed overnight. It's the vernacular we use, it's the terminology we use, but niches either slide and slowly fade to oblivion or many of them dip and climb. So the real estate market, particularly in the US, but globally too, 2008, we went through this horrible dip as the economy dipped and it's been climbing again. So it, it dips and returns. Other niches start to fade and go away over time. One example is the horse and buggy. I studied that industry. As the automobile came about, sure enough, it decimated the horse and buggy. So if you catered to the horse and buggy industry, the car took it over. But the good news is it took about 12 years to decimate it. Uber's doing the same to the taxi industry. Yeah. If, if you're a taxi driver or you're catering to the taxi industry, it's going out of business, but you still have time. So niches decline over time. If a niche starts to decline, you have more than adequate time to pick a new niche and start focusing your efforts there. I found when we focus on a niche and concentrate our marketing there, it's usually six to 12 months before we get serious traction. Markets, niches decline usually over six or more years on average from my studies. So that means you have one year to turn and you have six years for the existing niche to fade. So you have time. Niches don't go away overnight. And you don't have to be exclusive. You just have to specialize. It's a great point. And, and when I do some presentations that I do myself, I, I always talk to people who are in the book, you mentioned in the book about Blockbuster and John Anticchio and, and the Reed Hastings story. When, mm. when, that, when, when Reed Hastings flew down to Dallas and said to John Anticchio, well, actually, I want to be represent you online and you can represent Netflix in the shops. And, and I always say to people, I think the guy that John Anticchio, I think who, you know, at Blockbuster said, you know, who the hell are you to come into my big office and tell me what to do and look at it a few years later, chapter 11 and uh, the rest is history, isn't it? So I guess you've always yeah. got to move. And is that something, again, that you think a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, in my experience, they don't maybe look at nothing to the future and sort of predict what's yeah. We don't. We're in denial. You know, when something's working, you just keep doing it. Um, until it stops working and it, it punches you in the face. So the problem is we're doing something, it's successful, it's working, we're getting some traction. And then when it doesn't seem to be working, the inevitable response from the entrepreneur is, I gotta do it harder, I gotta do more of it. So we crank things up, we, we try to focus more on the industry or push more ahead. And then what happens is we get false positives. If, if you're working say 10 hours a day and getting X results, if you work 15 hours a day, even though the market's declining, you may get X plus results. And then we say, ah, the answer is to do more of this. So it starts this process of insanity, doing more of what's not working because we get these positive false affirmations. And it's at a certain point when the rug gets pulled out from under us, but we've been stuck in this pattern. Yeah. I found the key is this, actually start a competing division, offering business to ourselves. Entrepreneurs were all designed to be extraordinarily competitive, so let's use it to our advantage. Do continue the business you're in, but with your current business, start a new product offering that actually competes. Its goal is to take you out and focus on a new way of doing it. Now you're competing with yourself, and now you're going to be pushing the two forward, and the one that gets naturally more traction, which will likely be the new different approach, is one you'll jump into. You'll be much better positioned in that way. No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, in terms of, you know, when you started out, and obviously, you had Joe and other people just going back through your sort of some of your history and some of the, you know, is there things that, you know, you, that you got told or things that, you know, you wish advice that you'd have followed at the start? Obviously, a lot of stuff you've, you've done over the course of your career and business, but other things you were told at the start, you wish I'd, yeah. Yeah, I wish I'd done that more. Okay, so I'll give you a doozy one. This is the one my mentor said to me, and it blew me away. I sat him down one day. Uh, this is when I had my first company, the computer network mm -hmm. yeah. company. 
And I said, uh, you know, it looks like there's more, I can't remember what the exact words or consideration was, but it looks like the decision maker is shifting uh, to actually more females entering the IT market. Uh, I think we should modify our sales pitch to address this new market. How should I do it? And he looked at me and said, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. But the first thing I want you to know is do not listen to a word I'm about to say. And then which was caught me off guard. And then he went on. I mean, this guy gives me sage advice. And he went on to share his advice. And he goes, now I want to tell you why you shouldn't listen to a word I said. I am not the consumer. And I don't care what my degree of expertise or even my experience is catering to a market. I am not the consumer and I have an automatic bias from my own approach. And, and this is true for even you and I talking right now, James. If someone's listening in right now and saying, I don't know if this is right. It, it may not be right. We're both speaking to our own experiences and our own biases. The ultimate, the ultimate input comes from the customer, and it comes from not their words, but from their wallets. Pay attention to the actions of the client. You know, when you put out a new offering, tell your prospects to put down a deposit. That will tell you if they're resonating with what you have to offer or they're not. So don't, it was bizarre advice, but it was powerful. Don't listen to the words of me, my, an expert espousing ideas, unless you find that it resonates with your, what you already know about your customers, then there may be an opportunity there. And I think that's a great point as well. And it, and it leads on to the, you know, some of the other stuff that I, you know, when I listen to the book, it, you know, it talks around, you were big and big, and again, I'm, getting, I'm looking forward to reading the others, but you were very big on actually the value that you give to customers. And actually, you know, if you become this, this, this company of uber value to a, a supplier, mm. you know, then, and become their, their partner. I mean, you get, I remember the example you gave of, uh, of, of, of the banking one where you literally sat in the room and, 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 and it was quite scary actually in, in sense of how you became this, you know, this, this integral to, to the way that a company operated. And, and it was a great, I mean, I thought the referral scheme that you mentioned from that was really interesting that um, a lot of people always think about asking the customers for referrals and not necessarily the, the partners they work with. So um, <laughs> this is, this is the key, James, this is the key to explosive growth. It's, it's the vendor network. I call it the vendor well and the pumpkin plan. And, and here's the concept. Say you and I are working uh, together. Maybe I provide accounting services to your software company. Uh, I would approach you and say, listen, I know I'm your accountant, but for me to provide the best accounting services, maybe it'd be appropriate for me to know the other vendors you work with. Uh, maybe the computer supplier, because if I knew them uh, and, and what they were doing for you, I can collaborate with them. Maybe I changed the way we have our accounting structure to better track the depreciation of their equipment. Uh, would that make sense? What we do is we're approaching our client and seeking ways to collaborate with their important vendor network to work more cohesively with them. So for the clients, from the client's perspective, it's a great idea. And from my perspective, it's a great idea because when I have that relationship with that computer vendor, I can serve you better. I am working collaboratively with them. But the golden kind of hidden goose egg here is that now that computer guy is probably not just supplying your company with computers, they probably provide other software developers with computer technology. They are a gateway to your clones, mm -hmm. and you're my best client. Hallelujah! So when I did this strategy, and I, I do it all the time now, when I had my first company, um, it, it, you know, I grew it on fear and hard work, but that only got me to like half a million dollars in revenue and pure stress. I was a mess of stress. Yeah, I remember the the blotchy eyes, the blotchy skin. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really, exactly, red disgustingness uh, coming out of my face. I had no idea what it was. But when I accessed the vendor well, 
in, one client specifically was a hedge fund and this was the niche I was moving after. They turned me on to a trading desk manufacturer. They turned me on to clearing houses. Well, I got into these clearing houses and said, I'm the computer guy for this hedge fund. I want to make your job easier clearing house. How should I set up the technology? They were blown away. They've never been approached by another vendor. And sure enough, that clearinghouse called me, and this was only like two or three months after approaching them and working together with them on our one shared client. They started introducing me to all these other hedge funds. My little company still exists today. It's Olmec, O-L-M-E-C.com. I think we took on like 50 to 75 new hedge funds within two, three years. 75 clones of my best client. It grew stratospherically and I was able to sell it to private equity. Uh, and one question around that, because it was interesting when it, around that actually, because a lot of time people talk about focusing on one industry. What did your existing client, the, the hedge fund, say about you then working with lots of other hedge funds? Were they worried about you working with competitors or not? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I don't, you don't reveal that to them. So I didn't call no, them and say, hey, no, no, yeah. Yeah, introduce me to the clearinghouse. So but I can word gets around, them. doesn't it? You know, it, but it slowly does. It slowly does. What I did is I approached them and said, uh, we enjoy this industry tremendously. We love working with you. We are seeking to work with other clients in this industry. And what we believe is we're going to come back with better knowledge on how to serve you. Now, we also appreciate we may run into someone that represents a threat to your business and you're a key client to ours, to us. So would it be appropriate as we are considering working with a new client that we get your approval on this new client? So two things. One, we said we're going to serve you better by getting an intimate knowledge about this industry. And secondly, we appreciate our relationship and don't want to get a competitive threat. You have the right to pull, yeah. uh, pull the rug. So, and they, first of all, they never did. Secondly, if they did one, one here or there, I respect that. If they continually pulled the plug and said, no, you can't work with anybody, that means that relationship is not a strategic one and I should continue on without them. Yeah, and, and that's great feedback and great points in, in terms of what a lot of you know business owners don't do. And you know, a lot of the time that I listened in the book as well was about having very honest conversations with your customers and about having to get really get on the same page as them. And is that something again you think a lot of entrepreneurs don't do? They they don't really get to know their customers in the way they should do, certainly the way you, you know, describe in the pumpkin plan. Yeah, rarely does it happen. We you know we guess what our clients want. Now clearly I can see they need this and I need that, and so often we guess wrong. I, and I I fall victim to this still regularly. As I'm growing my uh, a practice that supports accountants and bookkeepers, I've made guesses saying, oh, they, they need this and start doing it. And they're like, that's the worst thing in the world. So we really need to seek out uh, the information from our clients. And I, I found there's actually three key questions. I write about it in Pumpkin Planet. Three key questions to ask your clients. First, ask your clients, your existing clients, what am I doing right? Why do you keep engaging my services? What, what are you benefiting uh, from by using me? But, and this is, this is a Jedi mind trick. I mean, this is like Rogue One Jedi mind trick. Because when you ask your client, what am I doing right? And they tell you, you know, you're detail-oriented or your responsiveness or whatever. They are actually not telling you what you're doing right. They are telling you what they're observing, what they're measuring your progress or your success by. Yeah. So when your client says, oh, one of my clients remember said, you guys respond so quickly. We value that. That actually means if I respond quicker, they're going to notice and fall in love with me because that's what they measure me by. So I make efforts now to amplify what I'm doing right and your clients will fall in love with that. Second question is what's wrong with my industry? Never ask what's wrong with my business because your clients will lie to you. It's socially inappropriate to say, you know, your business just sucks. Yeah. They'll never say that. But if you ask what's wrong with my industry, we're talking about the guy outside the room. 
And so they'll say, you know, Mike, these membership organizations like yours, I, I hate you know, the billing practice of getting billed when I'm not re- getting any benefit. I wish that there was some volatility, or not volatility, but variability in my option to, to cherry pick like a Chinese menu on what I want. So ask what's wrong with my industry, and now you're talking about the guy outside the room, and they can be much more candid what's wrong with us. Uh, last question, we just dug into it. What other vendors do you currently depend on? Because I want to collaborate with them. Mm. Ask those three questions and it positions you to really, really cater to this market. Brilliant stuff. I mean, it's, it's great. And like I say, I mean, and, and uh, I'll encourage everyone, people, and I'm going to put a link to it on the site because you, you, you have so much passion and this is, you know, you, you, I can see it. From, I do get jacked up. No, but, but you know what? I think it's one of the things... It's one of the things that I think a lot of business people um, sometimes lack, actually. And is this something, you know, you know, if you, I say to my own team here and people I work with, if I can't be passionate about something, then, then you're going to see it in, in the way I end my demeanor. And do you think that's a lot of, you know, it, I think it makes a big difference in terms of client engagement with, and people maybe don't see that. Is that something you think is quite key for, especially in businesses that small businesses that are trying to win new business, it's, it's showing that passion that they really care. Fact, Holy crap, it's everything. But I, th- I think it stems from a spot that we don't think about. There is a difference, I found, for me at least, there's a difference between passion and purpose. I'm passionate about a few things. I'm passionate about football, American football, the, right? The real football. Which team? Which teams? I, I was a Denver Broncos fan from years ago. so I made Oh, awesome. So, and I love that they have games over in England now. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not a big pro fan, so it's the New York Jets if it's the pros, but I'm a huge college, college, yeah. huge college fan. Uh, and in fact, well, it's, it's down here. I have all the college gear of my fandom stuff, helmets and stuff that I'm collecting. I'm a fan. I'm passionate about football. Quite frankly, not a business I should be in. Uh, I I'm probably would be the worst football player ever. One hit, I would probably crack in half. Like passion is just something that excites us. But purpose, that's the key. Purpose is something that we are called to do. Now, we can believe it's given to us by God or the universe or self-given I don't care how you define it. I just care that you find your purpose because when we have a purpose, this is our calling on what we need to do. It becomes a magnet that pulls us forward. My life's purpose as I've defined it is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Too many entrepreneurs survive check by check. Everything I do in my life, my books, what we're doing now, everything, I always hit my head. Am I eradicating entrepreneurial poverty? Am I so pumped up? Am I giving, delivering the best information that people can use to drive your business forward? If not, I'm not eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. So you've got to know your purpose. And, and by the way, if you don't know your purpose, your purpose is to simply ask yourself every day, what is my purpose? You must seek it out. And it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. And, and, and like you say, it's, um, you know, I talk about it. I mean, one of you know, the great author that I love reading is Simon Sinek, the why. Oh, and yeah, about, what, what is it, you know, what is you, what is it, why you do what you do? And if you can't do it and ultimately you're never going to be passionate. I think that's another big thing that a lot of people, business owners do. But I'm conscious of time, like in your time, I know you've got a big, you know, you've got a webinar this evening that you're doing about writing. So tell me about that actually quickly, because I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm actually in the process of writing a book myself and, and oh, awesome. Um, uh, yeah, which is which is about helping um, small businesses convert more prospects to customers because ultimately, but actually, it's it, talk about being authors. You know, do you think it's a big, you know, and I'm on a program at the moment which is about helping, you know, drive that position. Yeah. Do you think writing a book and becoming an author is, you know, has, has elevated your profile and position in a business perspective? Oh yeah, writing a book has been wildly successful for me. And uh, from my own selfish perspective, what I found is that. You know, what we just talked about on this webinar, I think it's powerful stuff, but something transcends the impact when we put it in writing. Once it's inside a book, it becomes almost 
almost like the Bible. Yeah, like God, I was gonna say godlike. It becomes yeah, godlike. And and I'm not sure why, but when I read information, I feel the same way. It's much more powerful. So writing a book has had the greatest impact. Um, the reason I'm doing this webinar is is being an author. You know, it ain't easy. Quite frankly, any kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, and I still consider being an author an entrepreneur. Uh, it, it's a product I'm selling. It's um, it ain't easy. So what I I'm trying to fix is there's so many great ideas out there. What you're doing, I suspect is amazingly helpful yet. So many authors have great stuff in their mind or potential authors, but they never, they may get it in the book and they never get it to market or at least the world doesn't recognize it. How do you get it where tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are reading your stuff? Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a formula that's worked for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a little atypical. It's not the normal path. So I want to share that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm tired of a few books that everyone knows and so many great books never being discovered. I, I'm trying to reverse that in this webinar. Well, I think it's a great idea. And I, and I think I encourage, I think it's tonight. I think, isn't it? it, it yeah. It, I guess people will be able to have, you know, copies of the webinar. I, I guess you make available on your website, which is my yeah. Com. But I mean, I guess one of the other interesting things around the book and the ideas of books is that someone said to me and the guy that encouraged me to write, it's the best business card you'll ever have. So uh, oh, yeah, that's true. You've got four of them behind you, I guess. You've got to decide which ones you take. So it's true. It brings instant credibility too. Yeah, to walk into a room and pop down a card. You know, one thing that woke me up to the, the powerful business card, uh, when I had my forensics business, I lost a major opportunity. I walked in the room, it was an open bid, said what I did, gave all the credentials. Another guy came in and literally said, I wrote the book on forensics, dropped the book on the table with a big thud. And my mouth was like, uh, and he got, his name's Warren Cruz, I'll never forget. He got the business. Books are amazing business cards. Um, if you want to, to use it for that strategy, for me, it's to change, it's just to change lives. It's to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. It is serving my purpose. I, the fact that it serves as a business card, that's a great additional bonus. That's really not what I'm looking for. I want to change lives. You can do either or you can do both. But you got to write that book. Write that book. Which is great. I mean, just to get a quick question before we finish off, Mike, which I think is great. You know, when you've, you know, one of the questions that we get from a lot of business owners at Tortress is about, you know, how, you know, they've got themselves and their cultures built. You know, you as an entrepreneur have built businesses. How do you build and, and, and what do you look for when you bring people into your businesses to, to sort of, you know, replicate mini mics? You know, what do you look for when you're hiring people? How do, is there any, you know, simple things that you do to sort of try and get, get the right people into your business? Is there anything you look for? Yeah, so when it comes to hiring, you know, I wish we could walk down the hallway now. There's, there's eight, eight folks out there. We're, we're a small business. Where there's nine of us. Yeah. And uh, I, I think our team, I, I would put them against anybody, uh, any of our competitors. I don't care if, if it's a multi-billion dollar corporation. We'll take you on. And I suspect <laughs> our team can kick your ass. Uh, and so why is it? Uh, it is around hiring on culture. That's one of the most important things. So uh, eradicate entrepreneurial poverty is our mission. It's not just our marketing message. It is our internal mission. So here's how we hire. When we run an advertisement and we interview someone, we ask them about their struggles with money. And we don't tell them, hey, we're here to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Tell us about poverty. We just tell them, hey, what do you think about money? Have you ever experienced challenges with money? Tell us a story. And I remember one of our well, they're all amazing. One amazing employee that we brought on board, her name was Jackie. She subsequently has left us. She uh, decided to have her family, or her husband, yep. decided to start a family. So she's, actually, she may be visiting today. Uh, she's now raising children. But she came on board and I said, what, you know, what do you think about money? And she goes, you know, I believe in frugality. And I, I said, well, why? And she goes, well, I grew up in, and this was my experience with money. And she goes, I really didn't plan on sharing this, but what I'm wearing right now is a hand-me-down. This is from my older sister. And uh, 
that's how much I believe in it. We hired her on the spot for our business. Uh, when we needed some work done here, uh, we needed some painting done. She went on Groupon and got a guy to paint the office for twenty five dollars. Um, like <laughs> you valued the pound, is it, as I would call it? Yeah. Right, right. She, she. It's ingrained in her. So the key to growing a great business with great people is to hire people that are already great inside and speak to your mission. It's ingrained in them. And, and one other little tip I want to share. When we run our, our adverts, is that, did I say that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, cool, rock and roll. The American got one. So <laughs> when we run our adverts, what we do is in the advertisement, um, it's a long one. I mean, a doozy of, a, of an advertisement. At the very bottom, uh, near the final third of the the uh, job posting, it'll say, if you're truly reading this article, we require that you respond in the subject line with the words, I've read your entire job listing and I'm psyched. And now, and we, we get hundreds of responses. We put on Craigslist, Craigslist or they something. They don't that in the subject line. <laughs> yeah, and 90% and of the people, just blanket responses. You're out. We don't care. We're not even going to look at you. About 10% do respond, and we know they know all the details of the job and they've read everything. That's our first kind of slice to get good people in the door. Then we do those job interview processes as I just shared. And, and that's great. So and, and it, and it, I know we're conscious of time and I know you've got to go soon, but it, you know, it leads on to one of your other things, which I was thought really good in the book, was your inimmutable laws, your laws of, of, of basically, you know, and I think that's so important. Again, a lot of businesses take a lot of shit, being honest, from their customers. Yeah. And, you know, people not paying them on time or treating treating them badly. I have a law in whereby in, in my company, if someone wants to talk rudely to my staff. You can give me, you, know, you can kiss my ass. Basically, I'm not interested because right, right, right. this is the most basic form of humanity. Um, but, but you talk a lot about that, and they're quite big for you. And you you encourage, I guess, all business owners to have two, three immutable laws that everything yeah. has to be run by. Is that right? Yeah, these immutable laws uh, are is similar to core values. The only reason I put the word immutable law is that it, it, it's, a, it's a, a value you need to stick with for life. It mm. is ingrained into you. And the goal is not to make things up that's, that sounds good. It's stuff that you already are. What do you live by? So to find your immutable laws is pretty easy. When you do something, when are the times you pat yourself on the back? Why did you pat yourself on the back? It's probably because you adhered to immutable law. When are the times you kick yourself? When you kick yourself, it's probably that you violated a law. So here's an example. My, my immutable laws are this. Uh, give to give. Uh, there's a lot of talk about give to get, but that sounds manipulative to me. It doesn't resonate with me. When I do something for someone else and I have an intention of getting back, that's manipulation. So I believe in giving for the enjoyment of giving. So rule one, give to give. And everything I do, even this podcast, am I really giving the most? Am I giving everything I know? Can people walk away from this and have impact without having to get more information from Mike? That's a give to give. Mm -hmm. Second rule is, is blood money. Um, I, I believe money is the, the blood of a business. Your life depends on it. You must be profitable. It must be baked into your business. Uh, and so everything I do is around profitability and sustainability. I'm, I'm not milking money uh, from everything I see, but I'm making sure that everything I do, there's baked in profit because that's where, that's where sustainability is. Positivity or death. I think we have an option to be uh, pessimistic or optimistic. I believe optimistic is the way to go and see the opportunity in everything. And if I choose pessimism, for me, ultimately that dwindles down to death. And the last one, and usually a favorite with everyone, is no dicks allowed uh, with that, with that yeah, rule, really, yeah, it was good. I won't hire dicks. I won't, if, if a client of mine's a dick, I won't serve them. They won't be a client for much longer. And most importantly, 
I won't be a dick. If I'm a dick, I'm breaking my own rules. So no dicks anywhere around here. <laughs> brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Mike, it's been fantastic to talk to you, and I really appreciate your time. Pleasure, before, bro. A couple of things, you know, for, for me. For you, what motivated you when things got tough? You know, what and what keeps? Because even you know, as a successful author and entrepreneur and as someone that's you know sold successful businesses, you have your tough times. What keeps you going when times get tough? And what's the message for anyone out there that's <clears throat> going through maybe some tough times? You know, for, that you'd give. Yeah. So uh, two things. One is that, that life's purpose, eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. I, I know I'm saying this over and over again, but that's such a magnet for me. When times are dark, I'm like, you know, it, I, my mission, my life's purpose is eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Just keep marching toward that. And I feel so compelled. It pulls me up again. And absolutely, I go through dark times regularly. We all do. It's normal. And that's the second thing. Darkness is normal. To see a, a, a peak, you must be in a valley. It's normal for all of us. And so what I know in my head is there's a continuum. I, I am not better than a single person on this planet. I am not worse. Uh, that's same for you, James. I don't believe you're better than anyone else, and I don't believe you're worse than anyone else. I believe that's for everyone on this planet. I just believe we're on a different part of the continuum. So we all have something to learn from each other. And when I'm going through a dark period, I know that the continuum's gonna come out and there's gonna be a light period. I also know there may be extraordinary learning for me during that dark period. And while I'm going through it, I effing hate it, trust me. But when I come out of it, I know that sometimes I'll be able to reflect back and say, that was worth every moment. Um, so I just remember that continuum. When it's dark, this too shall pass. Brilliant, brilliant advice. Absolutely amazing advice. Well, I mean, look, Mike, I mean, I, I, had, a, I had one, I, I will give one other final one, you can think about it quickly. You know, if you could go, sure. back, if you could go back in time and, and um, you know, do, do one thing differently, would you go back in time or not? Or you, I get the feeling from you, the sort of person that wouldn't worry about going back. You, you're too happy in progress about, you know, your, where your vision and mission is now. But would you, is there anything you'd do differently if you did have the chance or not? Yeah, I, I mean, I do have some regrets. And so, uh, I, really, I don't want to go back because I've learned from those regrets. They, they, they sting me, and I won't do them again. But I've been a dick. Um, I, I would – listen, I, that learning experience of losing all my money. Yeah, when you, uh, were, when you sold and did what you said. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. if I knew I knew now, I, I hope I wouldn't do that. But I'm grateful for it, too, because it tore out my, my tainted soul. I, I, hope, I'm, I hope I'm never – that never returns to me. That ego, I hope, has been ripped out permanently. Yeah, I would. I am ashamed of that period. But there's also been times I've just been a dick, um, and, and I've used that to learn. I've, I've talked behind people's backs uh, in the past and said things that are just inappropriate, and I, and I regret that. That that's dickish. <laughs> I punish myself. So um, now what I do, but I have learned from that. Now what I do is, if I'm ever talking, say say you know after this I walk down the hallway and they go, how the interview go? What I will do is I'll first picture you in my mind as in the room. I'll say, okay, James is in the room. And the conversation now I'll have with, you know, Christina down the hallway about you is like you're present in the room. And it's, it's defeated that, that kind of gossipy thing that I can lead to. Yeah. So I, I would go back. I regret ever having gossiped or being a dick and I would want to fix that. And I apologize to the people I've done that to, but shit, I'm, I intend to never do that again, ever. Well, look, you've been so generous with your time, and I'd like to thank you from. Yeah, it's thank been you, I've absolutely loved chatting to you. Um, I've, I've really, you know, and as I say, I, I've loved the book. I'm going to recommend thank to everyone you. that's listening to. I mean, which I was say, which of your books is your favorite? Have you got a favorite out of all four, or not really? Are all four your favorites? Yeah. So uh, the favorite one I ever wrote is the Pumpkin Plan. I just 
it's, it was just fun. But mm. Profit First, which is yeah, yeah. the one that's having the biggest impact. It's the most popular. I'm actually re-releasing it uh, uh, through Penguin Books. So it'll be readily available in the UK and globally now. Uh, and Surge is my most recent. Uh, quite frankly, I, I, I enjoy them all. They all have a special meaning to me. Pumpkin Plan is my favorite read. Profit First will have the biggest impact. It's a pretty good read too. Well, what I'm going to do, um, and actually as a, as, a, as a thank you to yourself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to buy, if, you can, if I can get five copies of the, of the book and get them sent to the UK here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer, no, but I'd like, we try and do the same thing here in touch to our, because the listeners of the podcast are about small businesses trying to grow and improve. So I, I think, you know, I've loved listening to the Pumpkin Plan. I'd love to get, you know, you some of your books shared with some of our, uh, our UK uh, customer base here, because I, as I say, I think you'd be a storm if you did come over. I think the UK guys would love your passion. So come on over to London. And I got to. We'll, I got we'll, to. We'll do. We'll get. We'll get some set up because I think honestly, you'd, you'd you'd fill the hall, and I think people would absolutely love to hear your stories and what you've done. And, and I really appreciate you, your time today. I would love to meet entrepreneurs over there, and uh, maybe one of the nights we can hit a pub. I, I, I by the way, just to have one beer. I found, I've challenged people to a drinking contest from the UK. I've lost every single time. There's no question. UK wins. Uh, I give up. I would love to hang out with you. Yeah, well, 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 I'm sure we can try and arrange it. But look, you know, okay. thanks so much for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it. What I'll do is, uh, as I say, I um, hope the webinar goes well this evening. And, uh, we really appreciate your time. So uh, thanks ever so much. And, um, you know, as I say, best of luck with the uh, the, the new book launch and, and plans and the webinar this evening. And I uh, really appreciate what you, you've offered to hear us on the Seven Figure Club podcast. So thanks ever so much, Mike. Thanks, mate. Take care. Cheers. So there you have it. That was the uh, Seven Figure Club podcast um, with Mike Mikalovich. And um, wow, I, I, I hope you um, enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed speaking to Mike. Um, as I said, he was truly inspirational um, and giving of his time and what he uh, you know, does for entrepreneurs. And um, so many great ideas, thoughts that came from the podcast in terms of how Mike approaches um, target marketing, um, you know, his thoughts around uh, being able to build culture and, and, and get achieve success as an entrepreneur. And, and, you know, actually, I think it's a, a great thing. I'm certainly learning continually every day. And it's a huge thing um, for me to be able to talk to Mike and listen to some of what he's got to say. And just to let you know, what I have been talking to Mike about is seeing if I can get him um, over to the UK to uh, to present at an event and uh, so if you'd be interested in hearing Mike speak face to face and meeting him and, and talking to him about how um, you know you, you know asking asking him some questions directly then let us know in the comment section or contact us at uh, the InTouch Growth Academy and uh, we'd be really pleased to talk to you more put you on a waiting list for um, Mike's uh, Mike to come over and, and speak to us hopefully in the uh, the spring period of this of this year so so that was this uh, edition of the seven figure club podcast I hope you enjoyed it um, I'm always on the lookout for great speakers and people that can share and their stories and what they've done um, so if you're a business owner that's bought and sold a business and really keen to share your story please get in contact with me and uh, we're really happy to do this and uh, if you uh, if you've got any ideas of someone you think it'd be great to get on the podcast then also let us know and we'll certainly try and reach out to them so thanks again once again for listening to the uh, seven figure club podcast my name is james white i'm the founder of in touch and uh, look forward to sharing with, with you some of our new stories and uh, podcasts in the future <laughs>